Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having these geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I'm mixing things up a little bit. I'm going to introduce you to my course, Listening to the Land of the Bible, Part 2. Part 1 of Listening to the Land is an overview of the geographical regions and the agricultural calendar of the land. Overall, it had a stronger emphasis on events in the Hebrew Bible. Part two of Listening to the Land focuses solely on the early Second Temple period and the Gospels. I thought it would be awkward to interview myself, nor did I want to just talk at you for 25 minutes. So I invited Dr. Yeshaya Gruber to join me. He is the professor of Jewish history and culture at IBC. You may know him as the host of the Roundtable Talks or the frequent host of the Hot Topic Seminars or as the instructor of the course, The Name of God. We did a couple episodes for this podcast on his course. If you missed it, go listen, because what Dr. Gruber has to say and the way he approaches the name of God is brilliant. I am still thinking about some of the things he said, and it's been nine months since I released those episodes. Anyway, I always have fun discussing issues with Dr. Gruber. He interviewed me when we talked through Listening to the Land, part one, and I wanted to invite him back again to discuss part two. I'm delighted to be back in the host seat at the Israel Bible Podcast. Thank you, Cindy, for inviting me, for letting me sit here. It is so much fun every time I have you on. I always greatly enjoy it. Likewise. And I think this is going to be a blast. I'm really looking forward to it. I get to interview you about your course, Listening to the Land of the Bible, Part Mm 2, which is in tandem with your new book, which is called Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels. Thank you so much for sending me the book. It's a great book, and everyone should go out and get it. Our students, our audience, the audience of this podcast, the people who are listening, this is a book for you. Just explains the entire setting of the first century, which you need to know in order to understand the Gospels. We'll talk a bit more about that. So I'm looking forward to sharing a little bit about my impressions and hearing more about your course and asking you all kinds of questions. I love every opportunity I can get to talk about the land and try to give it a personality. I am always telling people the land is like a character in the biblical narrative. And we just, in modern day, we don't really pay attention to land very much or what land can do for us and how we're connected to land. I mean, we do so much via the internet now, you know, especially during pandemic times, we've been not out and about nearly as much. And 
yet the land, our simple geography around us, if you live in a hilly area or a flat area or next to the ocean or out in the mountains, it has a great effect on who we are. We just aren't accustomed to seeing it. Well, if we don't see it in modern day, we definitely don't notice it so much when we're looking at the Bible. So I, I love to have these chances to give personality to the land and then talk about in what ways is it influencing the events that are going on? That's brilliant. You talked about how the land influences us. Even today, in our highly technological societies, highly segmented and specialized, geography still plays an overwhelming role in our lives. People who live by the sea may be more likely to fish than people who live farther inland, just to give a very simple example, highlands and lowlands. Even today, with all of our technology and the changes in our lifestyle, how much more, we could use the Talmudic principle, Kalva Homer, how much more in the ancient world when people were so tied to the land and the agricultural sea, or whichever, it could be the, the season of the sea, the tides, but the, it could be the agricultural season, or depending on where they lived, the cycle of the desert or of some other type of natural environment. Mm-hmm. So exactly. I love that you highlight this idea of the land as a character in the drama. And people can definitely learn a lot more about that in your course. Can I just go for a second, though, to the very first words in your book? Because I thought they were so interesting. Okay. And these are not words by you. These words are by John Beck. And he says, Cindy Parker puts Jesus in his place. (laughs) And time. And I think that's a great introduction. What in the world is he talking about? (laughs) You know, it's actually funny. I didn't talk to John about this prior to him writing that endorsement. But when I was trying to come up with titles for the name of the book, I almost called it Putting Jesus in Place. (laughs) But then I thought that might be a little too combative. Like people might read it incorrectly, but there is something so amazing, again, just about the power of land, the power of place. And I would say place incorporates so much more than just land. Like if we look at the philosophical concepts of place, it involves the social structures we build, the definitely the geography, the way that we use the geography, the way we set up structures, the way that we are interacting with other humans, as well as with the land. And That concept like that, the power of place, when we take these ideas of who Jesus was as a historical figure actually walking on earth, there is something about taking this figure and knitting him together with the land and the place and the social structures and the history in which he belonged. And that actually creates a much fuller historical figure. It helps us understand not only Jesus, the historical figure, but the crowds of people who were around him and the way that he's teaching. And it just, it answers so many questions that we don't even know that we should be asking. And so there's something really potent and powerful about identifying first what the place is in all of its fullness, and then putting Jesus in place. So I think that's what John is getting at. That's what I would have been talking about had I named the book Putting Jesus in Place. (laughs) Yeah, and I think every lesson that you have in your course does that in some way. It's Mm. really incredible. It's so obvious, right, that you have to understand the context 
in order to have any clue what this ancient literature is talking about. That's right. You have to know the setting. You have to know what's going on in that region of the world at that time period. What are the issues they're talking about? It seems so obvious, and yet it's been so neglected. Yeah. Why is that? I've been trying to figure that out myself. And what I find as I talk to professors from around the world, and as I talk to students And as I talk to adults, everywhere I go, and I'm trying to get people to engage this topic, and they just don't think it is interesting enough. They don't think it's powerful, as powerful as it is. And I think some of it is we've gotten so accustomed to the written word being the most powerful, at least in the scholarly world, we've gotten so involved in understanding the literary context. How are we receiving the text? How is the text either edited or put together? And so much focus has been on the words and how to understand the words that people have forgotten the physical context as a a very important part of that context. And so there is something about really only, you only need one or two examples to start showing people how powerful that is, but it's because we are so text-driven, and I think because in our globalized society, we have lost the ability to see the power of the land. And so we just have to be coached along a little bit to, to see where its power lies. Maybe you can just give us an example right off the bat. There's so many things we could pick, but one that springs to mind is if we're talking about Jesus, why didn't he spend much time in Jerusalem, for example? Ah. That was the capital, wasn't it? I actually really love this conversation. It's it's my favorite to do with people. Well, not my favorite. I have lots of favorites, but I really love doing this with people when they can be physically experiencing this. So I love to have people with me in Jerusalem, standing on the different hills, getting a feel for what this mountainous terrain is like, and mountainous in terms of Israel's version of mountains, not like the Alps or the Rocky Mountains, which is a very different type of mountain, but to be in this mountainous terrain and the bend and the fold of the hills and the fact that it's not on any kind of major highway, even though Jerusalem was such a significant city, it wasn't on any kind of important international highway. And so it's not influenced by all these outsiders. It's difficult terrain. You have to be purposeful about going to Jerusalem. And We see Jesus doing that because the temple is in Jerusalem, because the city is so significant, because it is the city of David, and there's connections to history and to roots that are there. But the terrain of Galilee, where Jesus spends most of his time, is completely different. There are several international roads that are running through that area. There's lots of different people who are there. Because the roads are there, there's huge valleys, which makes the exchange of ideas a lot easier, which means people living up in the Galilee area are much more accustomed to hearing different ideas, engaging different ideas. Yeah, just new versions of interpretations of scripture. They're just more willing to engage that than people up in Jerusalem are. You're putting it very delicately. 
But yes, some people would say <laughs> that those in Jerusalem are a bit closed-minded in some ways. Dare I even mention, even today, even to this day, some people would say <laughs> that. It's so fascinating, though, how the environment can shape mentality to that extent. I think of another way in which you put it, and you talked about how just the physical view, what you actually see when you look out from wherever you live, influences your mindset. Yeah. It, maybe you want to say a couple words about that. Yeah, again, it's when you're in the hills, the Judean hills or the hills of Samaria, the central hill country, It, your horizon line is very short. And what I mean by that is there's just additional hills that get in the way. So you might be able to see two miles away, say, or five kilometers away, but that's about it. And so what that does to your mentality, even if you're not really thinking about it or being purposeful about it, is the people who live just up over there, just behind that hill, people who are out of sight become very quickly labeled the other. The, the people you have to be wary of, you have to, you're suspicious of them. And so when they come up over the hill, they're already quite close to you. So you have a very short amount of time to figure out if it's dangerous or if they're there as a friendly person. So people are super skeptical. They tend to be, they hold on to their cultures, their customs much more readily. People who live down like on the coastal plain, so think modern day Tel Aviv even, you can see so far away. You can see 25 miles into the distance. It's so flat. You can see ships when they are very far away. You have this long time to anticipate who is coming and to know if it's friend or foe. And because you're situated on the international road, you're just accustomed to watching the comings and goings of people. And that is just going to make you more open and more willing to change. You become like in modern terms, first adopters of new ideas that are coming in from the outside world. You're less suspicious of other people. And so that was... It happens now as much as it happened in ancient times. So fascinating. Now, I think we're starting to get into what you call the real world of the Gospels. This is real life, the physical stuff that surrounds us and so forth and influences us. And that's in the title of your book as well, The Real World of the Gospels. I'm just curious, what other world is there? Is there a different world that's not real that is connected with the Gospels? And I'm actually thinking that there is because you describe in your stories and in your book about how you're often touring with people and they have various imaginary worlds that don't really match what's going on in the land of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So maybe is, is there this kind of dichotomy and what's the difference between the real and the imaginary worlds? I think that we can't help but come up with context and setting. When we are reading a story of any kind even if it's a story from a sacred text. Anytime there's a story, we fill in the gaps. We give it a context. We fill in the backstory if we don't know it. And I don't want to say all across the board because there's a lot of people who come at the Gospels with a full understanding of Second Temple literature in its fullness and understand the context of the Gospels. But other people especially who don't live in the Middle East, who don't understand culture or how it feels to live life in the Middle East, will 
fill in the gaps. And maybe they have encountered the Gospels without even a full understanding of the Hebrew Bible. And so then they don't understand the Israelite texts that were so massively, hugely significant for Jesus and every single person around him. And I find that Christians, especially Christians from the West in particular, come with a vision of Jesus, the Jesus they've already met and they already know in their spiritual walk, and that Jesus seems to reflect a lot of European ideas of Jesus, from the color of his skin to what different scriptures mean to the fact that they encountered Jesus in great big, huge cathedrals. And when I can point out to people and say, okay, who are the Pharisees? They just show up in the Gospels. Um, in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, Pharisees don't exist. Sadducees don't exist. Essenes don't exist. Zealots don't exist. So where did they come from? These are real people who are contributing to society that Jesus has to interact with them. And if we don't do our homework to figure that out, and if we don't do our homework to figure out what the land looks like and what the seasons are like, then we fill in the gaps. And we make all of those characters two-dimensional and too simplistic. I think they were just complex people trying to figure out how to live life the best they could and interact with even politics of their day as best they could. They just had different ideas. And so I think the more we, we do our homework to figure out the background, the more human all of these biblical characters become and the better we engage who Jesus is in interacting with these very real people in a very real place. Very interesting. So you're saying that the people are real, the places are real. We can figure out where they're going, what the environment is like. Um, we can figure out who these different types of characters are, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, others. But how can we do that? I mean, I've heard of this idea of 400 years of silence. and But you're mentioning something called Second Temple Period Literature. What is this all about? So... This is interesting to me. We do this a lot in our IBC courses. All of you, all of the faculty bring in a lot of Second Temple history and writings and kind of do comparisons and help flesh out what the Gospels are saying or even what the Book of Acts and what Paul is saying. And this literature is not always well known, especially in Protestant Christian circles, and why? Because it's not in our version of the sacred text, right? There's just a whole bunch of literature we don't have. And so within the Christian community, there has been very widely circulated this idea that there are 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew. God was silent because we don't have writings that contain the formulas of the Hebrew prophets. And I would argue that's how I grew up learning about scripture. 400 years, God was silent. And I just think that alone doesn't make any sense because there's nothing in the biblical text that suggests that God is ever silent. God is always speaking, always communicating, always making himself known to people, always engaging humanity. So I think that phrase doesn't quite make a whole lot of sense. But this 400 years of silence, I would say, is a misnomer. I think the better term for it, of course, is Second Temple literature. And it is full of God interacting with people and people trying to honor God and figure out how to interpret 
Torah correctly and live according to God's will as best as they can. And the fact it is not included in the Protestant Bible then skews and influences the way Protestants read the Gospels if they're not careful enough to go back and actually do the work to figure out what happened in these 400 years. Not included, of course, also in the Jewish canon, the traditional Jewish canon, but some parts included in the Catholic and Orthodox Christian Bibles, which is interesting, but only parts. So there's this huge library, which is what you're saying, of visions and interpretation and history, all sorts of things related to the life of especially Jews in the land of Israel, but also in other places and as they interact with other people that really gives us a sense of what's going on in this time period into which Jesus is going to step. But I'm curious. Oh, Oh, go ahead. Well, just that time period, right? That's where we find out why are there synagogues alongside the temple? Why are there Romans here? Why are people speaking a different language? Who are all of these characters that just suddenly show up in the Gospels and in Paul's writing? Who are these people? And sometimes, like if we just come to the New Testament with kind of a, oh, okay, of course they're supposed to be here. We lose out on actually asking those more probing questions, but but why are they here? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it helps us understand something that is said often at IBC in all of our different courses. It was a complex society. It wasn't monolithic. There were lots and lots of different type of people and ideas. And Jesus comes alongside all of those various ideas and is presenting another way to look and understand the Hebrew text. Honestly, if these are newer concepts to you, we have resources at israelbiblecenter.com for you to take advantage of. Or if you're already a student, you have access to the wide collection of roundtable talks like Angels and Evil in Second Temple Judaism, or Paul, James, Qumran, and the broader Jewish society, or Spirit and Man in Ancient Judaism. These talks will help familiarize you with Second Temple literature and culture. These are all listed for you in the show notes of the episode. Really interesting. Um, but I'm curious just because all of this is, of course, literature. You're talking about Second Temple period literature, so that's text. And you were saying before that sometimes there's an overemphasis on text as opposed to geography and land. So do these two things mesh in any way? I mean, is there a connection to the land itself when we come to Second Temple period literature? I think so, <laughs> because I think everything connects to the land. <laughs> uh I think so. And I think it is interesting in a very different way from looking at the Tanakh. When we're talking about Second Temple literature and land, what we end up seeing is there's a lot of people who are on the land of the Bible who are holding different histories and different political views. And we end up watching political boundaries move around a lot on the top part of the land. And those political boundaries end up influencing the way that people behave. 
inside those boundaries. Now, sometimes the boundaries uh, fall very nicely based on geographical divisions. Like when you have a great big, huge ravine or a chasm, that's a really good place to put a boundary because it it's marked visually by the geography. But sometimes it doesn't follow so smoothly, but people will end up behaving on the larger political body that is controlling that particular region. And we can see all of that happening in Second Temple literature. When you say a larger political body, yeah, uh, do you mean an empire? I mean, who, who are these larger political bodies? Yeah. Who's controlling the region? Is it one entity? Is it more than one entity? What's going on there, actually? So this little bit that I'm going to say is actually something that I touch on in Listening to the Land of the Bible, Part 1. The fact that this portion, this little tiny portion strip of land that we're looking at, geographically is very different from the lands around it. It is set up in such a way that it is smushed in between the Mediterranean Sea and the desert, and it's actually smushed in between lands like Mesopotamia and Egypt that can grow an empire. Those lands can support an empire. The land of the Bible is incapable of supporting an empire. And so what we see happening is the larger empires around this land push and pull over the top of the land of the Bible. So by the time we get to Second Temple literature, what we're watching happen is, in fact, this is what I do in, in the book that I think is really important for people to keep in mind. They should have an expansive empire view of what's going on. When Assyria is conquered by Babylon, is conquered by Persia, is conquered by Greece, right? These kinds of big political movements that are happening and compare that to the small ways that governors can influence a city or a high priest can influence maybe people in Jerusalem. But that is different than playing with the big boys who are the great big huge empires that are controlling the majority culture, the majority language, how economics is happening, how trade is happening. And so you have these great big, huge dynamics that are changing in the Second Temple period based on what's going on internationally. And then when we kind of pull our view in and we look at it more under a microscope and we're just looking at Jerusalem, it's very different. Those events in Jerusalem are not having huge influences on the empires. So it's good for us to keep in mind what are local events versus what are big empire events. And what's going on in the empire is going to vastly change the culture and the context for the people who are living in Galilee or the people who are living in Jerusalem or the people who are living even further south in Idumea, say. So it's, it's always good to have in mind the broad perspective, what's going on, and then also what's going on locally in response to the large global factor. Well, not global, but their version of global. The known world. The, the known world. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, if, if our listeners sign up for your courses, they will, of course, get some understanding of these broad trends that you're talking about, the empires, the geopolitical realities, the geography, how it's influencing different people in different places to act in certain ways. 
And this will be an amazing, amazing resource for them as they go through biblical narratives and mm -hmm. look at stories of Jesus or other characters. Aw, thanks for saying that, Dr. Gruber. Don't forget all the links you need to either register for this course or watch the roundtable talks are all in the show notes at the episode. And don't forget to like or to follow us on whichever podcast streaming platform you're using. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs>